0: Jeremiah chapter 21, let me just begin by reading the first couple of verses. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord when King Zedekiah sent him to Pashur, the son of Melchiah, and to Zephaniah, the son of Masaiah, the priest, saying, Please inquire of the Lord for us, for Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, makes war against us. Perhaps the Lord will deal with us according to all his wonderful works, that the king may go away from us. Now, notice the first phrase there of verse 1, where it just simply says, the word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Friends, one of the difficulties when we read the Bible and when we read a book like Jeremiah is we tend to read it with our sort of Western mind. And in our Western mind, chronology in telling a story is very important. And we just kind of expect that the events of Jeremiah chapter 21 would come immediately after the events of Jeremiah chapter 20. Well, I have to tell you that to the Asiatic or to the Eastern mind, chronology is not so important, or at least strict chronology. Therefore, when we come to Jeremiah chapter 21, we are 20 years after the events of Jeremiah chapter 20. Before Jeremiah chapter 20 began, Israel had yet to be, or I should say Judah, had yet to be invaded by the Babylonians. By the time we get to Jeremiah chapter 21, there had been two invasions by the Babylonians and now the final devastating one was just a few months or years away. You see, what we're happening right here, see in Jeremiah chapter 21, happens in the year 588 and suddenly here we are at the final stages of the city of Jerusalem before its fall. It's a little bit confusing, but let me just see if I can lay it out for you. About 17 years before the time of Jeremiah chapter 21, Nebuchadnezzar first came to Jerusalem. It was in the reign of a king named Jehoiakim. And he subjugated the city. He took the best and the brightest from Jerusalem, including Daniel and his friends. That's when they were taken captive. That happened again in about 605 B.C. Then about 10 years before the events of Jeremiah chapter 21, 21, Nebuchadnezzar came back again in the reign of a man named Jehoiakim. He carried away a lot of treasure, he carried away more captives, and he set up a man named Zedekiah to be a puppet king upon the throne. Now we fast forward to Jeremiah chapter 21, and we are in the last months or years of the reign of King Zedekiah, because he had rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, and Nebuchadnezzar came back To establish a little bit more Babylonian order, and he's there to devastate the city and carry away the final remaining captives. Now, notice this. Zedekiah had a question for Jeremiah that he sends through the messengers. Look at verse 2. Perhaps the Lord will deal with us according to all his wonderful works that the king may go away from us. Do you see what he's asking? He's asking right there in verse 2, hey, Jeremiah, do you have a word from the Lord for us? Maybe God will tell us everything's going to be okay. Maybe God's going to pull a miraculous victory for his people at the last minute. That's a remarkable statement that he asked there in verse 2. And it makes you wonder, have they been listening to Jeremiah at all? At all. Because for 30 or 40 years, Jeremiah has been prophesying doom. And now when the doom has almost come, the king sends a message and goes, Hey, is everything going to turn out okay? Is God going to work a wonderful work on, on our behalf? That's his question. Now look here, starting at verse 3. Then Jeremiah said to them, Thus you shall say says to Zedekiah, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Behold, I will turn back the weapons of war that are in your hands, in which you fight with against the king of Babylon and the Chaldeans who besiege you outside the walls, and I will assemble them in the midst of this city. I myself will fight against you with an outstretched hand and with a strong arm, even in anger and fury and great wrath. I will strike the inhabitants of this city, both man and beast, and they shall die of a great pestilence. Zedekiah had a question for the prophet Jeremiah Prophet Jeremiah, is God going to work a wonderful miracle for us? Jeremiah's answer No. Matter of fact, no way. Look at what he says in verse 4, it's pretty radical. Behold, I will turn back the weapons of war that are in your hands. In other words, I'm going to defeat your efforts to defend yourself. Friends, I want you to think about it. It's a startling thing. Set the stage for yourself. There you are in the city of Jerusalem, in the kingdom of Judah. The Babylonian armies have not yet started their siege of Jerusalem, but it's only a matter of time because they're beginning to filter into the country. The armies are gathering. You can read the writings on the law. We're dead men if this goes much longer. You you send a message to the prophet Jeremiah, is some miraculous going to help, and help going to come from God? And he says, not at all, not in the slightest. Look at what he says there in verse 4. He says, I will assemble them in the midst of the city. In other words, the Babylonians are going to come through those walls in the midst of the city. And God says, I will do it, God says. Matter of fact, look at what he says in verse 5. I myself will fight against you with an outstretched hand and with a strong arm. These are almost staggering words. God says to King Zedekiah, not only do you got to worry about fighting the Babylonians, you got to worry about fighting me. I am not for you in this battle. I am bringing my judgment against you. That's how heavy it is. And so there's going to be great anger and fury and great wrath and people who don't die by the sword, as he says there in verse 6, they will die by disease and a great pestilence. Now, verse 7, here's a message to Zedekiah personally. He says, And afterward, says the Lord, I will deliver Zedekiah, king of Judah, his servants, and the people, and such as are left in this city, from the pestilence, and the sword, and the famine, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, into the hand of their enemies, and into the hand of those who seek their life, and he shall strike them with the edge of the sword. He shall not spare them, nor have pity or mercy. Verse 7, You are going to go into the hands of the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. If you're fortunate enough to escape the sword, if you're fortunate enough to escape the famine, if you're fortunate enough to escape the disease, the pestilence which decimates the city, if you're fortunate enough to to escape all of that, then you know what's going to happen? Then you're going to be taken out of your land and they're going to take you to Babylon. To be a slave or just a low-class citizen of Babylon, they're going to forcibly eject you from your own land. You're done, friends. What a dramatic statement! Now you know if the Book of Jeremiah began at, at chapter 21, we might be saying, "Oh Lord, isn't this a little rough?" But we've been in Jeremiah a while, haven't we? We know. For how many decades God has called out to the people saying, repent, turn, get it right with me. And friends, they refused, they refuse, they refuse, And then finally, the day came when it was no more. It's very difficult for us to believe that one day the party will be over. That one day all those warnings God gave us will actually come to pass. But this is what's happening right now here for Jerusalem and King Zedekiah. Do you want to know how radical it was for King Zedekiah? Friends, Zedekiah was the last king of Judah. The, the final conquest of Jerusalem and Judah happens by Nebuchadnezzar against him. He's the last king of Judah right there. It ends with him. And do you know what they did to Zedekiah? Let me read to you from 2 Kings chapter 25, verse 7. It says this, Then they killed the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes, put out the eyes of Zedekiah, bound him with bronze fetters, and took him to Babylon. How do you like that? You have your sons right in front of you. And they murder your sons in front of you, and then they gouge out your eyes, so that's the last thing you ever saw. That's what happened to Zedekiah. Again, I don't want anybody to think that God is just in a bad mood against Zedekiah. Friends, do you know how long Zedekiah reigned? 11 years. For 11 years, Jeremiah spoke to him. For 11 years, he had the opportunity to repent. I don't want anybody to think that God's being unfair with this man. But as I said before, it's very hard for us to believe that there's going to be a time when the party's over. It's as if Jeremiah is calling out to Zedekiah and all Jerusalem, party's over. I'm sorry. It's done. Verse 8. Now you shall say to this people, thus says the Lord. Behold, I set before you the way of life and the way of death. He who remains in this city shall die by the sword, by famine and by pestilence. But he who goes out and defects to the Chaldeans who besiege you, he shall live and his life shall be a prize to him. For I have set my face against this city for adversity and not for good, says the Lord. It shall be given into the hand of the king of Babylon and he shall burn it with fire. Notice what he says in verse 8 it's a passage of scripture that's kind of familiar. He says here, verse 8, behold, i set before you the way of life and the way of death. That's what Jeremiah says to the whole city of Jerusalem. Hey Jerusalem, if you want to live, here's how to do it. Listen to me now. Here's life and here's death. And you might think, "Oh, he's telling them to repent." No, 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 friends. It's beyond that. It's done. No repentance on the behalf of any individual or Judah as a whole. No repentance is going to turn this back. The judgment is set in motion. But Jeremiah says, I'll tell you a way you can save your physical life. You don't want to die physically? Here's what you need to do. Again, that suggestive thing of setting before you a way of life and death. I think of Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 15. Moses said, see, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. And he called upon them to choose. And then I think of Joshua chapter 24, verse 15. And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served, which were on the other side of the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's what Jeremiah said. Make your choice. You want to serve those pagan gods? Great, serve them. But I'm going to serve the Lord. Make your choice. Then I think of what the prophet Elijah said to the people of Israel in 1 Kings chapter 18. He said, how long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. Again and again throughout the Old Testament and in the New Testament as well, the choice is put before humankind and it's a real choice. Choose this day, life or death, blessing or cursing. Here it is set before you. Now, how could they save their physical life? Look at verse 9. He who remains in the city shall die, but he who goes out and defects to the Chaldeans who besiege you, he shall live. Do do you know what your only hope is, people of Judah, people of Jerusalem? Surrender. Surrender unto the Babylonians. That's it. That's the only way you're going to ensure. Maybe you'll live through the captivity, maybe not. But if you want to be assured of surviving, then what you do is you surrender to the Babylonians. Now friends, this is what I want you to understand. When Jeremiah said this, it's as if he put a great big sign across his chest that said traitor. Because wasn't this being a traitor to the patriotic cause of Judah? Because the king, Zedekiah, and everybody else, they were trying to rally the people of Judah, saying, fight against the Babylonians. We got a chance. If we all pull together, it's another David and Goliath moment, on and on and on. They're trying to inspire him to stick together that. And Jeremiah says, forget all that. Give up. Surrender. That's your only hope. Now, we'll touch later on in the book of Jeremiah how this affected Jeremiah, but I want you to see that the battle was not only against the Chaldeans. Friends, if the battle was only against the Babylonians, then maybe the wise advice would have been, fight on, keep it going, trust in God. But don't you see what we read earlier in the chapter? The battle was not only against the Babylonians. Who else was the battle against? The Lord himself. And friends, your arms are too short to box with God. If God's on the other side, then your only hope is surrender. That's the only way you can win is by surrendering to God. Notice what he says there in verse 10. I have set my face against this city for adversity and not for good. With God opposing them, continuing the battle was foolish. And friends, this is an enduring spiritual principle When we struggle against God, our only hope for success is surrender. That's what God calls upon us to do. Verse 11. Now, he's not speaking so much to Zedekiah as he's speaking in general to the house of David. As a matter of fact, as we get into this, you'll see that the time frame, the chronology might be a little irregular here. We'll just check this out. Verse 11. And concerning the house of the king of Judah, say, Hear the word of the Lord, O house of David. Thus says the Lord, Execute judgment in the morning and deliver him who is plundered out of the hand of the oppressor. Lest my fury go forth like fire and burn so that no one can quench it because of the evil of your doings. Now notice this verse 12. He calls out to the house of David. Again, this is the royal lineage that God had established. That God had promised that the Messiah would come from the house of David. And what does he tell them to do? Look at verse 12. Execute judgment in the morning. Deliver him who is plundered. What God was calling the house of David to do as the rulers of Judah was to administer justice fairly and properly within the kingdom. This is a constant theme in the Old Testament and among the prophets in the Old Testament. They were constantly telling the rulers, rule righteously. Don't take a bribe. Don't pervert justice. Just administer things justly and righteously. This is what God is concerned about. Friends, do you understand that one of the basic responsibilities that God has appointed for civil government is the application and the execution of justice? God expects the civil government to to administer things in a way that brings forth justice. And that's what He called the kings of Judah to do. Why? Verse 12, Lest my fury go forth and burn so that no one could quench it. If they would not radically repent, judgment would come and it would be certain. Now, this is one of the things that makes us think that maybe this is an out of chronology prophecy. Because from the tone of these words, there's still a chance. Where we know by what he was saying earlier in the chapter, there was no chance. But friends, we have some of this pattern in the book of Jeremiah. Sometimes it's sort of a little bit of cut and paste from different errors of chronology. Verse 13, Behold, I am against you, O habitant of the valley, and the rock of the plain, says the Lord, who say, who shall come down against us? Or who shall enter our dwelling? But I will punish you according to the fruit of your doings, says the Lord. I will kindle a fire in its forest, and it shall devour all things around it. Friends, he's using poetic images to speak of Jerusalem. That is the uh, place that he describes as the uh, place in the valley Uh, the inhabitant of the valley, and the rock of the plain. These are poetic images to refer to Jerusalem. And they thought they were secure, but he's saying, you aren't secure. You need to prepare. The judgment is coming. Verse 14, I will punish you according to the fruit of your doings. They had a sense of safety, but God's judgment was coming nevertheless. Now, Jeremiah chapter 22, verse 1. Thus says the Lord, Go down to the house of the king of Judah, and there speak this word, and say, Hear the word of the Lord, O king of Judah, you who sit on the throne of David, and you and your servants and your people who enter these gates. Thus says the Lord, Execute judgment and righteousness, and deliver the plundered out of the land of the oppressor. Do no wrong and do no violence to the stranger, the fatherless, or the widow, nor shed innocent blood in this place. For if indeed you do this thing, then shall enter the gates of the house, riding on horses and chariots, accompanied by servants and people, kings who sit on the throne of David. But if you will not hear these words, I swear by myself, says the Lord, that this house shall become a desolation. Now, again, we have much the same tone that we heard in the previous chapter. He's exhorting the house of David, the rulers of the kingdom of Judah, to to execute justice and judgment and a proper care and concern for justice in their kingdom. And he says, if you will do this, there's a chance you can be preserved. This is, again, something that tells us that maybe this is a little bit of a cut and paste when it comes to chronology. But now look at how he goes on here into verse 6, because now he speaks again about the coming judgment. He says... For thus says the Lord to the house of the king of Judah, You are Gilead to me, the head of Lebanon. Yet I surely will make you a wilderness, cities which are not inhabited. I will prepare destroyers against you, everyone with his weapons. They shall come d- cut down your choice cedars and cast them into the fire. He uses an interesting phrase there in verse 6. He says, You are Gilead to me, you're like Lebanon, Gilead and Lebanon were mountainous regions known for their splendid forests, especially their marvelous cedar trees. And God says, these highly prized, these wonderfully valued areas, these beautiful, we would consider like a sequoia forest, that kind of thing. These things that are so beautiful and precious. That's how precious you are to me, but if you don't turn away, I'm just gonna mow it all down in judgment. That's the idea there. Verse eight. And many nations will pass by this city, and everyone will say to his neighbor, why has the Lord done this to this great city? Then they will answer, because they have forsaken the covenant of the Lord their God and worshipped other gods and served them. In sort of his prophetic imagination, Jeremiah imagines people walking by Jerusalem that's been devastated by judgment. And the people from the surrounding nations, they go, well, why did this happen? I thought that this was the Lord's covenant people. What happened? What happened? And then somebody answers them, ah, but Judah broke the covenant that God had with them, and therefore God has visited this judgment. There's the question, and then there's the explanation. Now, when we get to verse 10, we have a very interesting section in the remaining chapter of Jeremiah chapter 21. When we get to verse 10, we're going to have a prophecy that's directed to several of the kings of Judah. But here's kind of the difficulty. The kings of Judah were not all reigning at the same time. Some of them, Jeremiah is looking back towards, some of them are in his present day. But he gives a word from the Lord to each one of them. Let me just sort of give you an idea of the succession of the kings of Judah before the fall of Jerusalem. What we have basically is first we have a king named Josiah. He was the last godly king over Judah. The great king Josiah who tragically died in a battle with Pharaoh Necho at the city of Megiddo. So there's Josiah. Then you have his son who reigns, Jehoahaz. He reigned just for a very short period, only three months. Who was succeeded by another son of Josiah named Jehoiakim. He reigned for about 11 years, succeeded by Jehoiakim's son named Jehoiakim, or Chin. That was his son, and he only reigned for three months. Finally, the third son of Josiah comes to the throne, and this is the man named Zedekiah. So you have these succession of four kings who were all related. Three of them were brothers, but they reigned out of order, or at least of a normal succession. Now, this is what I want you to understand. Keep that in mind as we talk about these different kings. Verse 10 has to do with a man named Shalom, who's also known as Jehoahaz. Again, this was the first successor to King Josiah. Look at verse 10. Weep not for the dead, nor bemoan him. Weep bitterly for him who goes away, for he shall return no more, nor see his native country. For thus says the Lord concerning Shalom, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, who reigned instead of Josiah his father, and who went from this place. He shall not return here anymore, but he shall die in the place where they have led him captive, and he shall see this land no more. Okay, verse 10. It's actually speaking about two kings, Josiah and then Jehoahaz, whom he names here Shalom. First of all, he says in Verse 10. Weep not for the dead, nor bemoan him. When he says, weep not for the dead, he's talking about Josiah, King Josiah, who was killed in battle. But then when he says in the next line, weep bitterly for him who goes away, there he's talking about Jehoahaz, or here named Shalom, the same man, just given a different name in the different context, because he was taken away after only three months by Pharaoh Necho, taken as an exile to Egypt. He says, don't mourn for Josiah who's dead. He's in heaven. Mourn for the guy who was taken away and who now languishes in exile in Egypt. Mourn for him, verse 11, concerning Shalom, the son of Josiah, the king of Judah. The fate of Shalom in exile was worse than the more heroic death of his father, Josiah, in battle. Now, starting at verse 13, we have a message to a different king. 13 starts the message to a man named Jehoiakim, the one who succeeded Shalom, or uh, his name is also Jehoahaz. Here we go, verse 13 to Jehoiakim. Woe to him who builds his house by unrighteousness and his chambers by injustice, who uses his neighbor's service without wages and gives him nothing for his work, who says, I will build myself a wide house with spacious chambers and cut out windows for it, paneling with cedar and painting it with vermilion. Shall you reign because you enclose yourself in cedar? Did not your father eat and drink and do justice and righteousness? Then it went well with him. He judged the cause of the poor and needy. Then it was well. Was this not knowing me, says the Lord? Yet your eyes and your heart are for nothing but your covetousness, for shedding innocent blood and practicing oppression and violence. Friends, this is the Lord's message to the king, Jehoiakim. Now again, let me remind you of the succession. You had good king Josiah. Then you had Jehoahaz, who just reigned for three months. Then you had the 11-year reign of Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim had 11 years Eleven, if I may say, pivotal years. The last time we were in Jeremiah chapter 20, it was the reign of Jehoiakim. Now, in these pivotal years that Jehoiakim has, what does he do with his time? He builds himself a spectacular house. That's what he does. Look at it here in verse 13. Woe to him who builds his house by unrighteousness. That's how he built his house. He built himself the most magnificent palace in Jerusalem. Now, friends, there might not be anything wrong with a king having a great palace, but not when your nation is on a crisis point and needs every resource given to other things and not when you build it by unrighteousness, and that's exactly what Jehoiakim did. Look at it, verse 13, he did it by unrighteousness and justice. He gave nothing to the workmen for his work. Verse 14, he said very proudly, I will build myself a wide house with spacious chambers, and then in verse 15, God replies to, to sarcastically, saying, Shall you reign because you enclose yourself in cedar? What, do you think a fancy house makes you a king? You're no king. And then he goes on to describe how in verse 15, Did not your father eat and drink and do justice and righteousness? Remember your good and godly father, Josiah, and what a good king he was. Matter of fact, notice what he says about Josiah in verse 16. It's very revealing. He talks about the good that Josiah did. He judged the cause of the poor and needy. Then it was well. And then he says, was not this knowing me? Jeremiah called upon Jehoiakim to remember his father, Josiah. He enjoyed a modest life, but most of all, he did justly. He cared for the poor and needy. And this is what God says. Please note that phrase. Was not this knowing me? In other words, how could you tell that Josiah really knew God? Because he did kindly to other people. He was a man filled with love. Friends, do not forget that message, that this was evidence of Josiah's knowing God. Because Jeremiah spoke of a principle here, mentioned several other places in the Bible, especially in 1 John. Here's the idea. That our love for God can be measured by the love we have for other people. And friends, that's a very challenging thing, don't we think? Because I'll tell you how I think a lot of times. I think along these lines. Man, I love the Lord. It's just people I can't stand. I get along just fine with God. But man, a people annoy me to no end. Listen, Jeremiah And John in the New Testament, they blow the whistle and throw the flag on that. They say, no way, that's not true. Because if you really love God, the evidence in your life is going to be as to how you treat other people. Let me just read you a couple verses from 1 John. Ready? 1 John chapter 3. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. 1 John 3 verse 17. Whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? You see what he's saying? That somebody's profession to know God can be measured by how they treat other people. It was true in Jeremiah's day. It was true in John's day. It is true in our day. But look at how it was for King Jehoiakim, verse 17 Yet your eyes and your heart are for nothing but your own covetousness. You see, instead of knowing God, what did Jehoiakim knew? He knew greed. He knew covetousness. He knew how to feather his own nest and make his own bed. God was not impressed. So look at the judgment to come in verse 18. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, they shall not lament for him saying alas my brother or alas my sister they shall not lament for him saying alas master or alas his glory he shall be buried with the burial of a donkey dragged and cast out beyond the gates of jerusalem whoa what's going to happen to you jehoiakim they're going to drag your body out throw it over the walls and you're going to get buried like a donkey gets buried which i assume is not very well i've never buried a donkey but I assume it's not very well. That's the kind of burial you're going to get. That's kind of fascinating because in the narrative of 2 Kings, we don't read anything like this happening to Jehoiakim. To Jehoiakim, it just gives a very perfunctory statement that he died, he rested with his fathers, blah, blah, blah. But you know what? There's reason to believe that he died exactly this way. Again, you've got to put a few pieces together, but let me put these pieces together for you. Jehoiakim died when Nebuchadnezzar came back to Jerusalem and was besieging it. And he died during the siege. It's entirely plausible, although I've got to admit, 2 Kings doesn't tell us the case, but but we would gather it from the prophecy of Jeremiah. It's entirely plausible that he was assassinated by his own people and his dead body thrown over to the wall to get Nebuchadnezzar to stop the siege and as a way to surrender. It was their way of saying, we give up. And it's entirely possible that that's what happened because it's always suspicious when a king dies during a siege. And that's exactly what happened to Jehoiakim. Now in verse 20, we get to sort of a general prophecy against Jerusalem and her rulers. He says, go up to Lebanon and cry out and lift up your voice and Bashan, and cry from Abaram, for all your lovers are destroyed. I spoke to you in your prosperity and you said, I will not hear. This has been your manner from your youth, that you did not obey my voice. The wind shall eat up all your rulers, and your lovers shall all go into captivity. Surely then you will be ashamed and humiliated for all your wickedness. O inhabitant of Lebanon, making your nest in the cedars, how gracious will you be when pangs come upon you like the pain of a woman in labor. Verse 20, he says, Go up to Lebanon and cry out. The prophecy turns to Jerusalem and his rulers who were destined for judgment because of their foolish idolatry and alliances. Now, by the way, you might want to say, uh, how do we know that the prophecy turns from Jehoiakim to Jerusalem? Because, friends, in the ancient Hebrew, which, again, I I don't want to give anybody the wrong impression, I don't know how to read Hebrew, not at all, But, but I know how to read the guys who can read Hebrew, and they explain that when we get into this section of verses, it's now talking in the feminine plural instead of the masculine singular to Jehoiakim. There's a very definite change of the pronouns, which tells us that now we're talking about Jerusalem as a she. And what he says, Jerusalem, you as a she, you've been looking out to Lebanon and to Bashan and Abram. You've been looking out to all these foreign countries and their prominent places, to their high places. You've been looking to make alliances with foreign rulers, and it's brought you to you, ruin. And then notice what he says in verse 21. Friends, this is a takeaway verse. Are you ready for this? I spoke to you in your prosperity, but you said, I will not hear. Let me just read that verse again. I spoke to you in your prosperity, but you said, I will not hear. You know, uh, if you ever go to a cemetery, there's a lot of times very pleasant inscriptions written on a tombstone, is there not? Very pleasant things, you know, written about people. It should be. We always want to remember the dead with kindness and appropriate. But if you were going to be brutally honest, wouldn't this be an epitaph over many, many lives that God would say? God says, I spoke to you in your prosperity, but you wouldn't listen. You know, when times were good, I tried to speak to you. When you were flying high, I tried to get through to you. I called out to you to get right with me, to repent. And you know what? When times were good, you were having none of it. None of it. You were utterly uninterested in me. It took a crisis. It took a catastrophe. It took something falling apart before you would listen to me. Friends, can I just say a prayer that I hope every one of us is saying under our breath right now is, Lord, help me to hear you in my prosperity. Lord, don't make it be a crisis until I listen to you. Can't we just come before God right now and say, Lord, open up my ears now. I don't want to wait until I lose stuff, until I start listening to you. I want to listen to you now. Friends, that's the kind of heart that God wants us to have before Him. And this is one of the great weaknesses and tragedies of the human condition. In our prosperity, we frequently refuse to listen to God. And oftentimes, He only has our attention when things start to go sideways. Now, let me tell you something. In the name of Jesus, it doesn't have to be like that in your life. In the name of Jesus, you can say, Lord, soften my heart, open my ears so that I can listen to you even when times are good. I want to be guided by you then. I don't want it to require a crisis to get me to turn to you. Because if you don't turn, look at verse 22, surely then you will be ashamed and humiliated. Now, maybe then you'll listen to God. When you're ashamed and humiliated, then maybe the time for listening will come, but it wouldn't come before then. Now, in verse 24 to the end of the chapter, now we're talking to another king of Judah. This guy's name is Kaniah in the text we have in Jeremiah. He was also known as Jeconiah or Jehoiakim. This man was the son of Jehoiakim, And he was the second to the last ruler that ruled in Judah before the fall. So look what God has to say to him. Verse 24. As I live, says the Lord, though Keniah the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet on my right hand, yet I would pluck you off. And I'd give you to the hand of those who seek your life and into the hand of those who face you fear in the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and the hand of the Chaldeans. So I will cast you out and your mother who bore you into another country where you were not born, and there you shall die. But to the land which they desire to return, there shall be no return. Verse 24. Hey, Caniah, king of Judah, I'm regarding you like a signet ring. Do you know what a signet ring is? I've never had one, but it's a ring that you make a seal or an impression on a document with. These were very important things to kings in the ancient world. You know, they would seal a document in wax or whatever it was. It was an important thing for a king to have. It was valuable. It was precious. It uh, it signified authority. You know what God says? God says, you know what, uh, Caniah, Jeconiah, even if you were like my signet ring, I'd take you off and throw you away. That's how little I think of you. That's how ready I am to judge you. And friends, this was precisely fulfilled in Caniah. Again, he's also known as Jeconiah or Jehoiakim. After a brief reign, he and others of the royal family were taken to Babylon as captives. But then God says, verse 28, that he's going to put a curse on the line of Caniah. Notice this, verse 28. Is this man Keniah, a despised, broken idol, a vessel in which is no pleasure? Why are they cast out, he and his descendants, and cast into a land which they do not know? O oh, earth, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, write this man down as childless, a man who shall not prosper in his day, for none of his descendants shall prosper, sitting on the throne of David and ruling any more in Judah." He looks at Kaniah and he says, verse 28, is this man Caniah a despised, broken idol? He's inviting the rhetorical answer, yes, he is. He's despised, he's broken, he's an idol, he's good for nothing. And then look at the lament in verse 29, it's so powerful. Oh, earth, 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 hear the word of the Lord. My friends, wouldn't you agree that anything that God says with such a dramatic introduction Like, oh, earth, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Something pretty important is going to come after those words. Do we agree on that? Okay, lock in with me. We're almost done here this evening. You've got to lock in on this. He says, thus says the Lord, write this man down as childless. He's using the language of a census. It's as if the census taker comes to Kaniah's house, knocks on the door. Hi, Kaniah, how many children do you have? Now, you know what's interesting? Kaniah had, I believe, seven children. First Chronicles lists the children he has. But you know what God says? Write that man down as childless. I know he had seven children, but I want you to consider him as if he has no children. Why should you consider him as if he has no children? Look at it there. For none of his descendants shall prosper, verse 30, sitting on the throne of David and ruling any more in Judah. Do you realize what God just says right here? that the Kaniah or Jeconiah, you could call his name either one, that this man, none of his descendants are going to sit on the throne of Judah. Now, friends, I'm going to say it again, even though you're like, okay, David, move on, move on. No, 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 trust me on this one. God promised, he swore an oath to King Kaniah, none of your descendants will sit on the throne of Judah. Now, friends, this presents a problem. Because this unique and powerful curse seems to contradict a promise that God makes in another place. Because it was through the royal line of the kings of Judah. By the way, where did the royal line of the kings of Judah start? With David. God promised that through the royal line of David, through the kings of Judah the Messiah would come and reign not only over Israel, but over all the earth. And do you see what's happened right here? God has pronounced a curse on the line of the kings of Judah. How are you ever going to get a Messiah out of a cursed line? Friends, if I could say this and if I could kind of pull back the curtain of satanic strategy, because the Bible says we should not be ignorant of his devices, let me tell you what I think Satan was doing behind the scenes. Satan knew that the Messiah was going to come through the line of the kings of Judah. And so they were singled out for special satanic attack. And he tried to get them to sin and compromise and disqualify themselves every way that they could. And I bet when demons in hell heard this come from the mouth of Jeremiah, that there was a curse put upon the bloodline of the kings of Judah, there was a celebration in the councils of Satan. They said, we defeated God's plan. Now the Messiah can't come through a cursed line. It's never going to happen. We've defeated it. It's a party. Everybody gets tomorrow off. No, I don't know if they say that to the demons or not. Do you see what I'm talking about here? God promised that the Messiah would come through the bloodline of David, through the kings of Judah, and now there's a curse put on the family of the kings of Judah. Let me read it to you again. For none of his descendants shall prosper sitting on the throne of David and ruling anymore in Judah. Now, you would think that this is a problem for God, but you know how God addresses. this? See, God knew what He was doing a long time before. He has two lineages of descent for the Messiah, one of them a bloodline and one of them a legal line. Do you catch the difference between the two? You see, the Gospels describe for us two different genealogies of the man Jesus. Matthew records the genealogy of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born to Jesus, called Christ. He began at Abraham and followed the line down through Jesus, through Joseph. That is the legal line, through Joseph, and the legal line goes through the kings of Judah, through Caniah. But notice this. The other line, the line of Mary, does not go through the kings of Judah because it goes through a different son of David entirely. I believe it was Nathan, the son of David, not Solomon, who the royal line went through. So at David, there was a split in the messianic line, and the legal line went one way and ended in Joseph. The blood line went another way and ended in Mary. And here's the great thing about it. Was Joseph the blood? father of Jesus, not at all, only the adopted and legal father. The bloodline came through a line that was not cursed at all. Friends, you see God's wisdom from the very beginning establishing this. And can you imagine if there were, as I'm imagining, celebrations in the headquarters of Satan when this curse got pronounced, God just smiles and he says, you know what, devil? You can't defeat me. You can't outwit me. I've got a way around this. It's not going to be defeated. My plan will be completed. And even though in justice and righteousness, I announce that Keniah will never have a man to sit on that throne. And by the way, it was true. There was never a descendant of Kaniah after his time that sat on the throne of Judah. The next man to sit on the throne of Judah, the last man, was not Caniah's descendant. He was Caniah's uncle. So he never had a descendant to sit on the throne. God engineered it so that it didn't disqualify in the slightest the coming of Jesus the Messiah. Now, what we've looked at tonight is pretty depressing about the kings of Judah. Don't you agree? You're like, man, David, I came to church and I hoping to get a little bit cheered up. And I get this. I mean, the only thing we saw was the glimmer of hope in a good king, Josiah, who was killed tragically in battle. It's like everything is a downer with all these kings of Judah. And so we're left at the end of Jeremiah chapter 21, sort of crying out, isn't God going to give us a good king? Where's a good king? Where's a good ruler? God, won't you send somebody? Come back next week for Jeremiah chapter 23. And that's exactly what God does in the following chapter. And we're going to see how God splashes hope all over the page with the coming of the greatest king, the branch, the righteous one, the Messiah himself. Father, until then... I pray, God, that you would give me and that you'd give every one of us hearts that can hear you even in our prosperity. Lord, how crazy and and it's kind of stupid and it's kind of wicked that we won't listen to you until some kind of problem gets our attention. Lord, we understand that's human nature and that's just how we are oftentimes. Lord, we're just kind of here to officially say we don't want it to be that way. And I pray, Lord, that even in whatever blessing or prosperity you've given us here tonight, that we'd be able to listen to you and respond to your voice and love you. And Lord, um, I think we needed to see the disappointment on a human level with all these kings of Judah to prepare our hearts for next week's passage to see the glory of the coming King, the Messiah. So prepare us, Lord. Bring us to Jesus and bring Jesus to us. We pray this in your precious name. Amen.